Well, church, we are starting a brand new series this morning called I'm Tired. And we're talking about that because tiredness, in my opinion, is an epidemic in our world. And, listen to me, an epidemic in our church. I don't mean capital C church. I think it's true there. I also mean little C church, this church. We are experiencing tiredness because it is a normal human emotion, especially in the ways that we engage with the world uh, as we're called to by this world. I read some statistics this week that were crazy. Statistics say that 76% of people would say they are very tired every single day. And that 67% of people are experiencing some level of burnout. And that some corporations have done studies that show that tiredness has led to a $411 billion deficit in our economy because of mistakes, absences, inability to focus and concentrate in the workplace. Tiredness is an epidemic, and there's so many realities for it. We struggle with sleep routines. We struggle with having a good diet. We struggle with with life circumstances, health circumstances, work circumstances, and all of these are real things, and there are wonderful books and resources that speak to that that I would encourage you to engage in. But there's something else that is lying underneath all of that that I think is either driving tiredness or at least complicit in the epidemic of tiredness in our world. And that is the way in which we choose to orient our lives. And over the next few weeks, we want to look at and attempt to expose several lies that we have chosen to believe as human beings that lead to tiredness in our lives and attempt to replace them with the truth of the gospel that Jesus tells us brings not only life, but what he calls life to the fullest, or what we sometimes translate as abundant life. If you are feeling tired, if you are on the verge of burnout, if you are exhausted, or if you're just a little bit sleepy, we need to hear this message this morning. And this morning, we want to start by talking about the lie of performance. Now, if you've been with Hope Alliance for any number of years, you've heard me talk about this before, and I'm not ashamed to admit that we talk about it from time to time because it is that critically important, not only to how we function in the world, but to how we pursue a relationship with God. The world is obsessed with production and performance, and we have bought into that lie in such an amazing way that it has run our lives many times Uh, without us really even knowing it. And it leads us into all levels of tiredness and exhaustion because it's all about what I can do and can I keep up and how do I perform and what must I produce. And I think if we hear the message from Jesus this morning, we'll be able to replace the lie of performance with the gospel truth of acceptance. So if you've copied the scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19. I think we've got it up on the screen if you just want to follow along. This is a pretty famous story where Jesus has an interaction with what sometimes is called the rich young ruler uh, or a rich young man. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16, this is what it says. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, 
What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. And Jesus replied, don't murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. In this rich young ruler or this young man, we see a person who has completely bought into the lie of performance. Now, if you understand what's going on here, you see that the whole story is based on this man's pursuit of what is called eternal life. And if you've been in a church uh, for, any, uh, for any length of time, you sort of have a, a working definition of eternal life. And I, I want to make a suggestion which might be difficult, but I want to say to you that that definition is both true and also insufficient, right? So that our normal working definition of what the Bible calls eternal life is, is true, but also insufficient. So probably when you hear the word eternal life, you're thinking something like this. Eternal life is that promise that if I have believed in Jesus and received the gospel, that when I die, I will go to heaven and I will live with God forever, right? Pretty standard definition of eternal life. What I would say to you is, first of all, absolutely true, but also absolutely insufficient as a definition of eternal life. See, in the Jewish culture uh, of which the Bible springs up and which the Bible defines for us, this, this idea of eternal life really is oriented around the humanity's relationship with their Creator. That's why the whole story, when it starts in the Garden of Eden and talks about this life as it was meant to be, is about a dynamic connection between Creator God and His creation, specifically humanity. That is, when everything is right, humanity is functioning in relationship with its Creator. And then all through the Old Testament is this pursuit of regaining this garden experience so that ultimately... What comes to be known as the promised land, this place that is flowing with milk and honey, which is an agricultural term for eternal life, as the Jewish people would have understood it, is a place where what? God can dwell with his people. That somehow this dynamic relationship between God and his creation in the now as well as the future provides the kind of abundant life that we all long for, the realities of peace and love and, and, and all of these uh, joy and all of these things. So when the rich young ruler comes to ask this question, he probably is not at all concerned with a future reality. That's part of it. But what he's actually asking is, how do I have this life that the covenant tells me I have access to through God? And so implicit in that question is what? He's not experiencing it, right? Why would you ask for it 
if you had it. We don't have any uh, uh, proof here that he's trying to catch Jesus or twist Jesus. In fact, he really wants the answer because when he gets it, he has an emotional response to it. We have a man here who's longing for abundant life. Probably a man who is a bit tired and exhausted. And he comes to Jesus for the answer. Jesus himself in John chapter 17 and verse 3 would would define eternal life in this way. This is Jesus' definition, not mine. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, which is God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So when Jesus is defining eternal life, certainly he means that we're going to dwell with God forever, and we praise God for that. But he's also talking about a quality of life that comes now in this connection dynamically between the creator of the universe, our God, and us. That eternal life certainly is a future elapse of time, but it also is a present quality of life. Does that make sense? This is what we're talking about when we say eternal life. And to simply say it's future is to miss the heart of what's going on. So how then does the rich young ruler think he's going to get it? We know he's bought into the lie of performance because he asks two questions that are incredibly telling. The first question is what? What good thing must I do to get this abundant life? Right? He's bought right in to this lie of performance. That is, that the world is always asking us this question. What can you do for me? This is what the world wants to know, right? We experience this question vocationally. At our jobs, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? What? We experience this question relationally. We would love to believe that all of our friends, including our spouses and kids, love us because they're just filled with love. Part of the reason relationships exist is because you are useful to another person. We are broken humanity. It's hard to believe that, but it's actually true, right? You are useful to other people. And so in a relationship... Right? If you've ever done any counseling, this is what comes up in counseling to your own soul. They're no longer being useful to me. Oh, this is difficult. because The world is all about this reality. It's not just vocationally, it's relationally. And the rich young ruler lets us into something that's incredibly troubling. It's also spiritual, isn't it? In other words, that we believe that God also believes this truth. And he's asking us the question, what can you do for me? Now, if you believe the gospel, nothing could be more antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is all about what God has done for us in our incapacity to do anything for ourselves. And yet, the lie of religion is God is actually saying, what can you do for me? And this rich young ruler has bought into it. And lest we stand in condemnation of this man, I would suggest, if you're anything like me, You are constantly asking the question as you pursue life and value in this life, what do I need to do to get it? What do I need to do vocationally? What do I need to do relationally? What do I need to do spiritually? Because I want it and I know I've got to do it to get it. And Jesus answers the question in a strange way, doesn't he? I would, you know, again, the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. God knows what he was doing when he... Uh, preserve the Bible like you did. I would so love to have audio sometimes, wouldn't you? I would love to know Jesus' emotions when he says some things. And I think here, he might have been a little bit sarcastic. Uh, it could be me reading into it, because that's how I read into stuff. But he says to him, did you just say good? 
did you really just ask me what good thing I must do? And he says, only God is good. And right from the beginning, Jesus is trying to cut him at the knees, not in a, in a, a, a demeaning way, but to say to him, hey, something's way off in your logic about how you're trying to pursue life here. If you think you've got good stuff to offer, only God is good. But then I think Jesus is going, but I'll play along with you, right? So what does he say? He starts listing the commandments. You shall not murder. Well, that's pretty easy. We'll check that one off. I think we're okay with that, right? He says, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Hopefully we can check that one off. And you notice they start to get a little harder, right? You shall not steal. Well, it depends what you mean by steal, right? And then he's like, and you shall honor your mother and father. And then we're all toasts, right? And then he's like, and you should love your neighbor. And then we're like, I give up. But not this rich young ruler. His answer is crazy, isn't it? He's like, I'd done them all. Now, he's saying that not, certainly in a prideful way, but also in a way to say that where he's failed, he's made covenant and sacrificial atonement for what he's failed. So he's not, he's not being just a real, you know, uh, standing on his high horse or whatever. But he's basically saying, I've done these things. And then he asks the second question, which is incredibly telling. He says, but what do I still lack? And this question is critical for two reasons. One, because it proves to us that we can produce and perform in a lot of good ways and still not experience life, right? He's saying, I've done all that and I still don't feel it. I'm still tired. I'm still exhausted. I'm still all over the place. What am I lacking? What am I missing? And it's also an incredibly telling question because in this question, we now know that he has internalized the question of the world, right? We said the world asks this question, what can you do for me? Now he's internalized it and made it personal by basically saying, how do I measure up? What am I lacking? How do I measure up? Church, this question has the ability to destroy you. If you give it space, it will paralyze you. How do I measure up? It leads to one of two results almost always, right? Either pride, I measure up really good, or despair, I'm nobody, I can't do it. Both of which are actually versions of pride. We've talked about this before, we don't have time to get into it. But both of which always lead to exhaustion, right? Because when you're in despair, you feel like you'll never get there. And when you're pride, you feel like, I can't, can't let up. Because as soon as I fall down, I'm like those people, right? It's kind of like the prophet Haggai said, hey, you earn money, but you put it into pockets with holes. It's like never good enough, never good enough, never good enough. And it leads us into two realities almost all of the time. That is either to compare ourselves to other people, or to attempt to prove ourselves to other people. And nothing could be more exhausting than those two realities. And yet, if we're honest, for most of us, this is how we orient our lives. Because we have believed the lie that either vocationally, relationally, or spiritually, or let's be honest, all three and many more, 
We need to perform in order to be valuable. And unless we feel valuable, we can't really feel life. And the world is berating us with these realities. Unless we think it's some modern phenomenon, here we have in the first century world of Jesus, a man asking the very same questions that I ask all the time. What's wrong with me? Why is that church growing faster than this church? How come he's a better preacher than I'm a better preacher, right? And you ask the same question. Why did he get the promotion? I didn't get the promotion. Or I'll never be anything like that. And we are paralyzed by this reality of performance. And so Jesus, again, answers in a crazy way, doesn't he? He's like, well, I'll tell you what you lack. You should sell everything. Now, this is necessarily crazy, right? And Jesus means it to be crazy. This is not a normative thing, right? If you happen to be blessed by wealth in your current existence, you should not take this verse as normative, and that should not be your application as you leave. I would suggest to you even that Jesus is not talking about physical wealth. He's actually talking about personal identity. That is, for this man, his whole identity was built on his achievements and his wealth, And Jesus was simply exposing it for what it was by asking the question that he knew this man couldn't answer. Kind of getting off these kind of esoteric philosophical questions and getting right to the heart of the matter of what this man was in his identity. He's exposing him for who he is, for an identity he has built. What would Jesus say to us this morning? He might tell you to sell all your things, but what do he say to you about your job? Or parents, what would he say to you about how you're attempting to parent in order to prove to your kids that you're a good parent? Or to prove to your parents that you're a better parent than them? Or, listen, to prove to the world that you're a good parent? And in every other function of life, What question would he ask you individually to expose the identity you've built that is tiresome and exhausting to you? And it says the man leaves sad because he's aware now that in this orientation of life, he's never going to experience true life. But yet he's not willing to believe that true life exists in another way. Jesus will go on to say, we didn't have it up on the screen, we didn't read it. It is harder for a rich person, or for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Again, this is not about wealth. This is about identity. Why is it so hard? Because if you can't recognize that you have need, you will not be inclined to accept grace from God. And you will always be inclined to try to accomplish it on your own, as tiring an endeavor as that will be. Jesus is just saying, hey, if this is all about what you can do, good luck trying to squeeze that camel through the eye of a needle. It's not going to work. And the man leaves sad. And we're kind of left with like, well, what do we do about this, right? How do we go from here? What is the right answer? And yet... 
Matthew, being the great gospel storyteller that he is, in compiling his gospel, has given us the answer in this very chapter. Do you notice that at the very beginning of the story we read in verse 16, it said, just then. Matthew is connecting it to the story that had happened just before it. And so we say, well, what story is that? This is what it says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. Listen to this. But the disciples rebuked them. Disciples are bad people. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven. Listen belongs to them. Harder for a rich man, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to embrace the kingdom of heaven. But kids, they've got it. When he placed his hands on him, he went from there. Do you see it? That the way to embrace life is to embrace God like a little kid embraces his father. The disciples are necessarily against this because they are in a movement process, right? They're like, listen, we don't have much time. Jesus, your messages are gathering crowds, but they're also gathering opposition. If we're going to bring this this Jesus kingdom to bear, if we're going to kick out the Romans, if we're going to do our thing, we need to gather people who can help us. Chief on the list of people who can't help us? Kids, right? They keep us from accomplishing what we want to accomplish, right? They're cute, but they can't be part of this. And Jesus is like, whoa, stop. Bring them. And in so doing, says to the disciples, if you want to be part of this kingdom, this is how you get in. Right? So how do you get in? You, trans, you know, transform into a child? No. You realize that you have nothing to offer but that God stands like a loving and doting father and calls you in anyway. And when you throw away the lie of performing in order to gain life and are received by a loving father who welcomes you anyway, there is such incredible freedom in that that you actually begin to breathe. And as you allow that truth to percolate throughout your whole existence, it begins to change how you approach your vocation and change how you approach your relationships and change how you pursue God spiritually. We'll talk about all these things in the coming weeks. No longer to try to earn something, but now pursuing them on the basis of God's acceptance of you without any achievement. I love what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 3. He said, listen, no one has a better resume of achievement than me. If you think the rich young ruler was great, Paul was way better. He said, as according to the law, I was without blemish, Paul says. Then you know what he says? Here's what you should do with my resume. Put it in the bathroom and use it as toilet paper. Right? It's almost a literal translation. The literal is actually more graphic. You go there if you want. In other words, that... To embrace God and the life that he offers is to necessarily agree that you are poor. Not without wealth, not without a nice house, not without cars, not without a beautiful family, 
but without anything to offer to achieve life on your own. I love Jesus' heart for the kids. He says, listen, don't hinder them. I think that's his heart for you. He says to the world around you, stop telling lies to my kids. Let them come to me. This is where life is. And sometimes he has to even say that to religious people, right? Like the disciples. And then he does something dramatic. It says he puts his hands on them. He takes possession of them. They're in, as it were, and part of the family. Friends, are you tired? Are you part of the 76% that is so tired every day? 60% people are near burnout. Are you part of that? Are you experiencing exhaustion relationally, vocationally, spiritually, in life somehow? At some level, part of it is you have believed the lie of performance. And you need to accept the life-giving words of Jesus. That anyone who comes to him, he gives life. And the only way to come to him is as a child. Maybe this morning you have experienced the tarnish of this world and you're saying, I would love to do that, but I am so overcome by all of these things. How do I even begin to make this change? And I think Jesus says something profound, and we'll finish with this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, verse 23 of Matthew chapter 11, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. Listen. And have revealed them to who? Little children. Verse 28. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Yoke is, I suppose maybe they use them now, probably in Lancaster County or somewhere like that, where oxen would be linked together, almost always a, a Um, domesticated oxen or an oxen that had been tamed to an oxen who was untamed. And and the older tamed oxen would be yoked to the untamed wild oxen so that it would help that oxen learn how to operate in the right way. Jesus is saying, you need to be yoked to me. You're wild and prone to go off in all kinds of directions. And if you'd be yoked to me, I would show you the path to life. He doesn't just end there. He goes, and I should be yoked to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'll take your pursuit of life that actually leads in death. And I'll give you my pursuit of life that actually leads in new life. And so Paul would say it this way. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone the new is here. Friends, you 
are free from performance. Can I pray with you?